Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. This is chapter 11, and as you are turning there, I want to begin by telling you a story that happened in the heat of summer when I was in seventh grade. When I was in seventh grade, we spent a lot of time at the neighborhood pool, hanging around and doing stuff in the summertime that seventh grade boys do. And there's something very strange that happens when you get seventh grade boys going through puberty, a high dive, and giggling girls on the sideline. I don't know what that combination really means, but here's what happened. All my friends got together and said, let's do a double dog dare who can do the best dive off the high dive. And me, I was, a, I was on the swim team, and I liked swimming, but the high dive, I did not like the high dive. I'm still afraid of heights to this day. I do not like going up in the balcony. It scares me. But I was on that high dive, and so I'm going up the steps, because you're not, as a seventh grade boy, you're not going to back down. I mean, you're just not going to do it. If somebody double dogs dares you to do a dive off the high dive, you're going to do it. So I'm, I'm going up the steps, and I'm praying, Lord, uh, help me to get through this. This is for the girls. You're, you're going to do fine, Sean. So I'm up there, and I'm on the high dive, and I'm on the precipice, and I'm about to dive. And you guys remember the song by The Clash, Should I Stay or Should I Go? If I stay, there will be trouble. If I go, there will be double. It's kind of one of those things where it's like, what am I going to do? And I thought, okay, there's my friends. There's the girls. There's the water. I'm just going to take a flying leap off the diving board. And so I attempt to dive into the water. Instead of being a nice dive a half a sec later, it was a belly flop. I mean, it was one of those stingers. I mean, I hit the water, and it was like flat. And it was one of those things where it almost knocked me out, where I was, I was spinning, my stomach was red, I came up out of the water, and instead of the giggling girls giggling, it had turned to finger-pointing and laughing. And I'm there in the moment of humiliation, but I thought to myself, at least I did it. I jumped. I took the leap of faith. It wasn't the prettiest thing, but it was a belly flop, but at least I did it. Now, why do I tell you the story about jumping off of a high dive? How many of you here this morning have been at the precipice of something very, very crucial in your life, and you're there at the point of no return, and you're thinking to yourself, why am I here? How did I get here? What's going to happen next? What does God have in store for me? Where am I headed? And you have to take that spiritual leap, if you will. Many of us have had to be on the precipice of taking a spiritual leap, a leap of faith. And this morning we're going to see a man who takes a leap of faith. We've been in Genesis for a long time, and don't ask me when we're going to get done. We're going to get done when we get done. But we've been in Genesis 1 through 11. It's part one of Genesis. Genesis is divided into two parts. There's Genesis 1 through 11. We can call that episode 1. There's Genesis 12 through 50, we can call that episode 2. So we're transitioning between the first part of Genesis to the second part of Genesis that really takes up more space. And so here's the issue. What happened last week, if you were here? What was the whole theme? The theme was, what are you building your life upon? And we saw these guys that built. Nimrod built 
Assyria and Babylon, and and his name means we shall rebel, and he built a city based upon rebellion and pride and arrogance. And we saw the Tower of Babel. They built their lives upon pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency and and, and manly, world-centered religion. And so God, in his judgment, confused their languages. God judged them, and they scattered. And how did it end last week? It ended in confusion, rebellion, scattering. And it's kind of a cliffhanger ending because what's been the issue all along in Genesis? We're promised in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And it looks like all things are lost at the end of Genesis because we have Noah's sons and we have these 70 nations, but we haven't heard a word yet about the one nation that we know from the Bible is going to bring about the Messiah. What about the nation of Israel? Where does the nation of Israel show up on this scene? And so we get to the point where God's going to work out his sovereign plans by doing something new. He's going to birth a new nation. So if you have your Bible, let's look at Genesis chapter 11. And let's look at verses 27 through 32. It's the end of episode 1, if you will, as we transition into episode 2 of Genesis. Genesis eleven twenty-seven. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The names of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, this is a genealogy leaning up to Abraham. And you may ask, well, this is, this is interesting. There's, there's a bit of information here, but there's, there's two things I want to draw your attention to that we're going to come back to. There's two bits of information that are very important in that genealogy. One is Sarah is barren. She has no child. That's not an accident that Moses put that in there. The second thing we find out from there is that Abraham is from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, modern-day Iraq. Now, you may think that's just a tidbit of of, of genealogical and geographical and historical information. What's the importance of that? We'll come back to that. Just keep that tucked away in the back of your mind. But what we're coming to now in Genesis chapter 12 is the theological center of Genesis. What we're about to launch into are the most important verses in Genesis. And I could say maybe the rest of the Old Testament. Because what we're going to see this morning in Genesis 12 is going to answer a lot of questions. We're not going to have time to answer all the questions this morning, but it brings up a lot of issues. The whole issue of the gospel, the issue of the birth of the nation of Israel, the issue of missions and evangelism, the issue of God's sovereign grace, the issue of Jesus coming through the birth line of Abraham. There's a lot of issues that come out in Genesis 12. And so we're going to launch into this this morning. So let's read together Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9 some of the most important verses in the Old Testament. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, 
and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they had passed to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. How does Genesis 1-1 start? In the beginning, God created. How does Genesis 11 end? Confusion, chaos, rebellion. So what God's about to do in Genesis 12 is a new creation. He's going to do what he did in Genesis 1 just in a different way. He's going to birth a nation. He's going to start a new kingdom. God is going to summon into existence a new creation. This time with Abraham as the head as opposed to Adam. So here's the main idea from Genesis 12. This could be the main idea of the entire book of Genesis. This could be the main idea for the entire Old Testament. Really, this could be the main idea for the entire Bible. And we see it here in Genesis 12. Here's the main idea. It is simply this. God births or God creates a new kingdom through sovereign grace. God's creating something new. It's a new kingdom. And how does he do it? He does it through grace, through his sovereign grace. And so the, 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 the call of Abraham is God doing a new creation. God is doing something new. He's birthing the nation of Israel and eventually Jesus. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to ask three questions in relationship to this new, cre- this new kingdom that God's creating, this new creation. Three questions. Here's the first question. How? How does God do this? How does God create this new kingdom? How does God going about calling this new creation into existence through sovereign grace, the Abraham's call, the birth of the nation, how does God go about do that, doing this? And we see three primary answers to how God goes about creating this new kingdom. Here's the first, and it's very important. First of all, God sovereignly calls Abraham out of pagan idolatry. Now, where's Abraham's hometown? Ur. Would you like to be from Ur? I'm from Ur. Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, you say to yourself, well, that doesn't mean much to me, Sean. So what that he's from Ur of the Chaldeans? Let me tell you about Ur of the Chaldeans. When you study archaeology, some of the digs they've discovered from that place, and you study history, and you just look at the meaning of Abraham's family's names, you find out that Ur is the center of moon worship. They worship the moon god Sin. 
not like sin, like we think of like doing things wrong, but capital S-I-N, the moon god Sin. His father's name is Terah. Terah means moon protector. Sarai's name means queen. Some scholars believe that she was named after the queen mother of the, the deity of the moon goddess. Their names are related to pagan idolatry worshiping the moon. So Abraham, before God called him, was a moon worshiper. He was a pagan idolater in modern-day Iraq, having no knowledge of who the God of uh, Adam was, the God of Noah was, the living God, Yahweh. He had no idea. As a matter of fact, listen to what Joshua tells us about Abraham. In Joshua 24, 2, Joshua said to all the peoples, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Naor, and they served other gods. Abraham was a pagan moon worshiper. He had no idea who God was. He wasn't seeking after God. He was comfortable in his idolatry. And notice what God does. God comes amidst his pagan idolatry and royally messes up his life. Do you see what God does here? God calls Abraham. And God does something very unique. How did God create the universe? He called it into existence with this powerful word, did he not? God spoke and it was. What are the very first words that Abraham hears from God? Look at chapter 1. I mean chapter uh, chapter 12 verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, "Go. Go." The very first words Abraham ever hears from God recorded in Scripture is, go. Other translations use the word, leave. Just as God summoned the creation into existence by the power of his word, God is summoning this man to be the creation of a new nation by the power of his word. God always commands, God always does things by the power of his word. And he calls Abraham, he says, leave. And when you look at the translation of that word leave, if you look at the original language, just this idea of, I'm not just going to casually get up and go. It means no, leave. Abandon everything that's important to you. Forsake everything that you are comfortable with. Get up, pack up, leave it all behind, and go. Go to the place that I'm going to show you. John Calvin translates it this way. I like what he says. God says, I command you to go forth with closed eyes until having renounced your country, and you will have given yourself wholly to me. In other words, God's saying, Abraham, you have no idea where you're going. You're going with closed eyes, but that's the way you've got to go. You've got to renounce your life in pagan idolatry. You've got to pack up your family, and you've got to leave. You've got to go. God calls Abraham out of pagan idolatry and sovereignly establishes this new kingdom through one man. But what's the second way God does this? Secondly, God graciously promises Abraham a seven-fold blessing. There are seven blessings here. It's no surprise there's seven. Seven is a very important number in biblical numerology. Seven means complete. It means whole. It means perfect. And these are blessings that, that come comprehensively from God to Abraham. And notice that God's the one that's doing it. God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do this. God doesn't tell Abraham to bless himself. 
God doesn't say, tell Abraham to do all these things. The only thing required of Abraham in this deal, if you will, is obedience. God says, go. I'm going to do all these things, but you've got to go. You've got to obey. You've got to get up. You've got to leave. So what are these seven blessings? Well, here's the first one. Abraham will be a great nation. Look at verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation. Now, the word nation there means a, a land with political and geographical boundaries. It's not just a wandering nomads out there, but actually a nation. And we know that it eventually becomes the nation of, of Israel. Secondly, God says, I'm going to personally bless you. I will make of you a great nation, number one. Number two, I will bless you. Abraham, I'm going to personally bless you. And as we read the rest of the book of Genesis, we find out that Abraham was blessed. He was one of the richest men that lived. Now, we need to be real careful here. Very, very careful. Because there are some in the word, faith, prosperity, gospel movement that will make these promises for Abraham applicable to all people. These are promises made to Abraham specifically at a specific point in redemptive history. And so don't believe a lie that God says to you, if you just have enough faith and you sow your seed into my ministry, God will make you rich. God will, not, God will make sure that you don't ever get sick or have cancer. You've just got to name it and claim it because after all, God blessed Abraham and he's bound to bless you. God is not bound to bless anybody. God chooses to bless us, and we're thankful when he does. But this is a specific promise to Abraham. I will bless you. And then thirdly, what does he say? I will make your name great. I'll make your name great. Now, does that sound familiar? What did we look at last week? What was the whole issue with the Tower of Babel? What did they want to do with the Tower of Babel? We want to what? Make a name for ourselves. Now, in the Tower of Babel, they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to ascend to God. They wanted to do it in their pride and their power and their prestige. And God says, I'm going to do it differently. Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. So if Abraham's name is going to be great, it's not because of his power, because of his pride, because of his prestige. It's going to be because of God's mercy upon Abraham. And God's going to do it. And God's going to do it by grace. And Abraham's going to be a man of humility. Fourthly, Abraham will be a blessing to others. You will be a blessing. You personally will be a blessing. As we go through the book of Genesis, you'll see that everybody that comes in contact with Abraham gets blessed. He's personally going to bless others in some way. Fifth and sixth, I will bless those who bless you. Those who dishonor you, I will curse. We'll see next week that just right down the road when they go down to Egypt, Pharaoh's cursed because of dishonoring Abraham. There's a plague in his household. Now, we've seen six of these seven blessings. And most of these, I think, are applicable to Abraham the man and to the nation of Israel. But there's the seventh blessing that is comprehensive, that extends beyond Abraham and extends beyond Israel. And so I've, I've left the seventh as its own point here. So what's the third way in which God brings about this new creation? Thirdly, God ultimately desires to bless all the nations through the coming Messiah, Jesus. What's the last thing? In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, how in the world is this going to happen? How, how is through Abraham 
All the families of the world are going to be blessed. Not just the Israelites, but all the nations. How will they be blessed through Abraham? Do you realize this is a missionary verse? This is a promise to Abraham that you're going to carry on the seed of the woman. From your lineage, Abraham, is going to come the Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus is going to come and he's going to bless not just the Jewish people, but all the peoples on the earth. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians. He unpacks it for us. He, he explains it for us. In Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That's us. We are of faith. We have faith in Christ. We're the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. When it says there, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, it's an announcement that the gospel would come to the Gentiles and we would be saved by faith through Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's why we can sing the children's song when we're kids. Father Abraham had many sons, you know, right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, turn around, do all these crazy things. Because he's our father, because We've come to faith through Jesus, who's through the lineage of Abraham. So this is a missionary verse. Do you know that God's plan from the very beginning announced to Abraham was that salvation would not just be for the Jews. It would come through the Jews. It would come through the Israelites. It would come through Jesus. But God's desire from the very beginning was that all the nations, all the peoples, all the tribes, all the clans would have faith in Christ Jesus. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. They're talking about Jesus here. He's the Lamb. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed, you bought, you purchased people for God. From where? From every tribe, language, people, and nation. Now, do you ever wonder why we do missions here at Emmanuel? Some of you may say, well, it's because we obey the Great Commission and we're supposed to do it. So we do what we're supposed to do. And I would say, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Yes, we do it because of the Great Commission. But why else do we do missions? We do missions because God's plan from Genesis to Revelation was that the nations would bow before King Jesus. That through Jesus, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And God announced it to to Abraham and said, Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And in Revelation, we see the final scene there where all the nations of the earth, it doesn't mean every single person saved. It says people from, representatives from every nation, tribe, and tongue would come and they would worship Jesus. And so what's the fuel for us to do missions? What's the fuel for us to go to unreached people groups in India? What's the fuel for us to do church planning in Moscow? What's the fuel for us to take mission trips to Nicaragua? What's the fuel for us to go to the unreached people groups of the nations? The fuel is that it was announced to Abraham in Genesis 12, and we see the final vision in Revelation chapter 5, and so from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, God is a missionary God that wants the nations. 
He wants to go to unreached people groups so that they one day can be like Abraham. What did God do with Abraham? He took him out of pagan idolatry so that he could worship the living God. When we go to unreached people groups, they may not be moon worshipers. They may worship the moon. They may worship the sun. They may worship Allah. They may worship Buddha. They may worship 10 million Hindu gods. They may be atheists in communist countries. But our goal in doing missions is to call them to salvation so that God can save them out of pagan idolatry like he did Abraham so they can bow before King Jesus, who is the Messiah. That's why we do missions. It's so much bigger and so much grander when we see the story from Genesis to Revelation that God is a missionary God. And his heart from the very beginning has been the nations. There are 7 billion people in our world right now. And it's growing. And a large majority of them live in unreached, unengaged people groups who've never heard the gospel. They've not rejected the gospel because they find it offensive. They haven't had a chance to even hear the gospel. It's not gotten to them. Carl Henry has said this, the the founder of Christianity Today and the great evangelical leader of the 20th century, he said this, the gospel's only good news if it gets there in time. So the first answer to our question is, how does God do this? Well, God does this new creation by calling Abraham out of pagan idolatry and giving him this sevenfold blessing with ultimately the desire that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is huge of what God is doing here with Abraham. So that's the what. What does God do? But I think there's another important question. The second question, this, this is what God has done, but now we see Abraham's response. The, qu- the second question is, what's the response to this new creation? What does Abraham do? When God calls Abraham and says, get up and go, what does Abraham do? What's the response? When the God of the universe calls you out of pagan idolatry, what, what does Abraham do? Well, we see two things that Abraham does that will truly mark him as a man of faith. Here's the first He responds with immediate obedience. Look at verse 4. So Abraham negotiated with God and had a meeting with his family and argued about it and sat down and wrote down all the pros and cons of going. And then he decided, is that what your Bible says? What does it say? Hopefully you were like, he's not reading my Bible. So Abraham went as the Lord told him. He was 75 years old. He got his family and his possessions, everything they had, and they went. Where? Did they know where they were going? All God said is, I'm going to show you when you get there. There's no GPS here, Abraham. There's no map. As a matter of fact, you'll know it when you get there. Just get up and go. Anybody like those directions? You'll know when you get there. But if God's calling you, you've got to trust that he knows what he's doing. Now, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham did this immediately. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed. When he was called to go out to the place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, the writer of Hebrews here does something very interesting. When he says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, went, 
In the original language there that the writer of Hebrews uses, he almost makes it sound like Abraham packs up and goes while God is still calling him. Do you see it? It's not like God called and then Abraham went. It's God's calling. And while God's still voice is still ringing to go, Abraham's up and he's ready and he's out there. It's immediate obedience. Listen to what Martin Luther says. Because it didn't make sense, did it? If you were Abraham, what would you be saying? God, you've got to be joking. Take everything that I know, everything that I love, everything that's comfortable and pack up and leave. And I don't even know where I'm going and I'm supposed to trust you to get me there. That does not make sense. Martin Luther said this, Faith is not knowing where you're going, what you're doing, what you're suffering, but to follow the bare voice of God and to be led and driven rather than to drive. To follow the bare voice of God. Do you think God messed up Abraham's life? Your life would be messed up, wouldn't it? If God came to you and said, I want you to uproot your family, I'm calling you out of pagan idolatry, I want you to take all of your possessions. I want you to get up and I want you to go and I want you to do it now. And I want you to do it because I'm God and you don't know who I am, but I'm God and I want you to get up and I want you to go and I want you to do it immediately. Because it's me, God, who's calling you to do it. And by the way, Abraham, I know you're 75, but there's no such thing as retirement here in this world. You gotta get up and go. Many of you have read David Platt's book, Radical. We looked at it a few years ago as a church. I encourage you to read it, but there's one statement that he makes in that book. He says this, As a Christian, it would be a grave mistake to come to Jesus and say, Let me hear what you have to say, and then I'll decide whether or not I like it. If you approach Jesus this way, you will never truly hear what he has to say. And here's the important one. You have to say yes to the words of Jesus before you ever hear them. Are you in a posture to say yes to Jesus before he ever calls you? Our response to the Lord should be immediate obedience. Now, there was another time in our life where we had to really trust the Lord. And I've told the story many times over the years here at Emmanuel. I'll tell it again because there's always new people, and some of you don't know the story. In 2004, I graduated from seminary, got my degree, and Don and I were praying about where God would be leading us next in our ministry. We were at a church where we had served for eight years as a youth pastor. It was a a good situation. But I had a buddy of mine come to me and say, you know what? We really want to plant a church outside of Fort Collins in the Bellevue-Laporte area. And we think you and Don would be great church planners to go start this church. And here's the issue with the church. The church had been closed down for two or three years. It had a bad reputation in the community. It was all grown with weeds. There there was a building that was there. And basically what he told me is you'd be going in, you and Don, you wouldn't know anybody. Really nobody from the sponsoring church would be helping you. You would go in there by yourselves and start this church from scratch. And Don and I prayed about it. And we were willing to do it. We were willing to do what God had called us to do. And there came a point where we were on the precipice of having to make a decision and God intervened in an almost supernatural way to get our attention to close that door. But we were on the precipice of having to make a decision because we would have to leave a church where we were in a good situation with good pay, as a pastor can get, you know, as a young youth pastor, we would have to go from a church that 
with support of our ministry to going to a new town, uprooting our family, with no support to starting a church from scratch and not knowing what our salary would be. But if God called us to do it, we were willing to do it. We were willing to say yes because it was God calling us. Now, in God's sovereignty, he rearranged the situation, and he supernaturally, and I'll tell you guys the story. I'm not afraid to tell you the story. I've told many of you the story. We drove up there one Saturday right before we had to make a decision. And, and as we're driving around, I just had this eerie sense that there's something not right about this. And I'm usually a pretty talkative guy when we're driving in the car. My family knows that they really can't get me to shut up. I'm either singing with the music or talking, and, you know, and so... I was very silent. Don was very silent. We were driving around the area. We drove up in a canyon. We just had this weird sense that something was not right. And we drove all the way back to Colorado Springs, and we didn't talk much. And we knew that we had to make the decision within the next couple of days of whether we were going to quit everything and go on this journey to start this church. And so that night, I put the family to bed. Don was in bed. I go out to my living room, and I kneel down on my couch to pray. And as I'm praying, I can't pray. I literally physically cannot pray. And I feel this oppression in my chest that I just, I can't do it. And as I get up and as I walk back to the bedroom, and I don't know if it was a demon that I saw, I can't explain all that, but I know there was a presence in the house that was probably demonic. And it freaked me out. And I went back and I laid down and I felt this huge pressure on my chest that I can't quite explain. And I turned to Dawn and I touched her and I said, do you think we're doing the right thing? And she immediately popped up. She said, Sean, I've been, I, I, I'm troubled in my spirit. I don't think this is right. Call your dad right now. Well, it's midnight, Don. I don't care. Call your dad. He's a pastor. So I call my dad at midnight. What's going on, Sean? We're freaked out here. There's a demon in our house, and God wants us to go on this huge... Thing. He's like, what are you talking about? Anyway, the point of the story is we were ready to obey, no questions asked even if it meant... And here's the hard thing for us. Here's the hard thing sometimes. Was it spiritual warfare that we should go there and we didn't want to? Or was it spiritual warfare and God saying you don't go there? That's where we struggled with because we were willing to go. Even if it meant that it was going to go into some demonic territory, we were ready to go. But God sovereignly and very clearly closed the door. And guess what happened? That next Sunday night, I'll never forget it, I'm sitting on my... I'm sitting, they're watching TV or something Sunday night after church, and I look at Don and I say, you know, I, I put my application into a manual like a few months ago, and you know, I've never heard from them. I, I bet you they're going to call tonight. And she's like, a manual? Where's, you mean in Sterling? I'm like, yeah. That night the phone rang, and it was a search committee saying, we want you to come to be our pastor. Now God sovereignly worked out the details, but the point of the matter is, sometimes you're on the precipice where you've got to obey, and you're not sure what the future holds. And God says, Go. God says, leave. So, so obeying God's voice can sometimes be scary. It can sometimes be unsettling. But here's the point. The only worthy response to God when he calls is yes, even before you know what he's asking you to do, because he is Lord. But let's see the second thing that Abraham does. Not only does he respond with immediate obedience, but number two, he responds with passionate worship. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. He built an altar. Interesting. What does Abraham not build? He doesn't build a city. And he doesn't build a tower. He builds an altar. 
Then verse 8. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord again, and he called upon the name of the Lord. He builds an altar in worship and prayer. He doesn't build a monument to himself. He doesn't build a tower of Babel. He doesn't build a city. He builds an altar. And he gets on his knees and he worships God. You may ask the question, why does Abraham worship? Well, think about it for a moment. If God has called you out of pagan idolatry and he's given you these blessings and he's shown himself to you in power, why would you not fall to your knees and worship him for his grace? Paul tells us about Abraham in Romans 4, 17 and 18. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead. This verse gets me every time. He calls into existence things that do not exist in hope he believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations as he had been told so your offspring shall be he hoped against hope because it was God that called him and he worshipped and he passionately built that altar and he went when was the last time and I challenged our men this yesterday as we closed our men's retreat When's the last time you've wept over the gospel? When was the last time you shed tears that God saved you out of pagan idolatry? You may not have been a moon worshiper, but every single one of us in this room were pagan idolaters to the core, and God saved you out of that and revealed himself to you and put a new song in your heart and gave you new life. Like Abraham, do we call upon the name of the Lord? Are we a praying people? You know, we talk a lot about prayer in church. We need to pray for revival. We need to pray for spiritual awakening. We need to pray. And there's a lot of people talking about praying, but there's a lot fewer people actually praying. Let me just encourage you that there's a lot of major things coming up in the life of our church that we need to be diligently praying about, fervently praying about. We have 16 people going to India at the end of May. 16 people. We as a church need to be fervently praying for that. We have children and youth that are coming here on Wednesday nights that do not know Jesus. And they're hearing the gospel. And their families need to be reached. Are we praying for our families and our children that are coming here? We have marriages in this church that are on the brink of destruction that need to be rescued. Are we praying for marriages? This morning as we prayed for men, are we praying for the men of our church to rise up and be the men? There's a lot of people in this church that are going through hard times. Are we praying? And I've just even been thinking about this. There may be persecution coming. Are we praying that we be prepared for whatever God brings our way? Are we being obedient to go to the nations? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. I stand here to confess, frankly, that from my inmost heart, I attribute the large prosperity which God has given to this church vastly more to the prayers of the people than to anything God has given to me. The condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. 
So is the prayer meeting a graceometer, and from it we may judge the amount of divine working among a people. The church rises and falls on the prayers of its people. And I don't know about you, but when I look at the life of Abraham, and I'm always amazed at Abraham because, I mean, just the bare faith to get up and leave and not know where you're going and to fall on his face and worship and call out to God. I mean, just in these chapters, you see a man that is passionately sold out for Christ. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to settle for just like two hours on Sunday morning Christianity. Your relationship with Christ is so much more than just the two hours you put in on Sunday morning. The Bible calls us to live for Jesus 24-7 in all areas of life. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That your body is a living sacrifice. I mean, I'm just amazed at Abraham. He, he immediately obeyed. And he lived a life of passionate worship. And he never put down roots. If you, if, if you see Abraham never really put down roots, he's going here, he's going there, he's going everywhere. Why? Because he was focused on the real prize, which is heaven, and his Savior there. So those are the first two questions. How does God do it? He does it in an amazing way by calling a pagan out of idolatry and giving him these seven blessings to bless the entire world through Jesus. Number two, what's Abraham's response? Immediate obedience and passionate worship. But there's the third question. If you look closely at this passage of Scripture, you see some seemingly insurmountable barriers to God doing this. You may say, well, what do you mean by insurmountable barriers? Here's the third thing. Seemingly insurmountable barriers will not stop God's sovereign purposes in creating this new kingdom. Seemingly insurmountable barriers will not stop God's sovereign purposes in creating this new kingdom. What are the two barriers? Did you read it carefully? Sarah is barren. Sarah's barren. Which means what? If Abraham's going to be a blessing and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, and if the Messiah is going to come through Abraham, Houston, we've got a problem if his wife can't have children. That is a huge, insurmountable barrier of infertility. He's 75 years old. She's old. She's past normal childbearing age. This is an insurmountable barrier that you have to ask and leaves you scratching your head thinking, well, how in the world is this going to happen? How are they going to create this huge nation? How are they going to possess the land? How are they going to be a blessing if she's barren? That's a barrier, a seemingly insurmountable barrier. But there's also another barrier. I don't know if you caught it. Look at chapter 12, verse 6. Moses, the writer of the scripture, just kind of inserts it in there. And you kind of wonder, why does he put it in there? Number six, or verse six, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And listen to this. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Second barrier, the Canaanites were in the land. Think about Abraham for a moment. He's a childless nomadic wanderer with no army, and he's going to go in and say, this is my land that God has given me. But the Canaanites are in the land. There's people in the land. He's childless, and there's people in the land. These are seemingly insurmountable barriers, and you've got to ask the question, well, if God had promised these things to Abraham, how's he going to get through these barriers? Well, here's the answer, and I hope you know it. No plan of God's can be thwarted. God can get through the barriers. God is sovereignly on his throne. 
Now, from a human perspective, we may see these insurmountable barriers and think, well, this is hopeless, this is helpless, I'm despairing, I don't see the light in the tunnel. But let me just tell you, if it's for God's glory and it's for your good and it's according to his will, he will break down the barriers. Listen to Job 42.2. Job's at the end of uh, the book of Job says, I know, he's speaking about God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Underline, circle that in your Bible as a promise. God, I know you can do all things and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. No plan of yours can be stopped. Nobody, no power of hell, as we sang earlier, can come against the great I am. So let me ask you this. This is something that our friend Artaxerdia asks his church. I've, I've used it from him, but I think it's an important thing to ask. And it's simply this. What are you asking God to do that only God can do so that when God does it, only he gets the credit. There's a lot of things we can do as a church. There's a lot of things you can do as a family. There's a lot of things you can do as an individual. There's a lot of things we can do, but here's the issue. What are you asking God to do that only God can do? Only God can do this. So that when he does do it, only he gets the credit and not you. Are you asking big things for God? Are there some insurmountable barriers in this room today that you feel like, I, it's just too huge? It's just too overwhelming. God possibly can't. Don't ever say God can't, unless it's related to sin. God can't sin, but all things are possible. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God can do far more than you can ask or even think according to his power at work. I challenge you to go home this week and ask the question, what what are you really wanting God to do that only God can do so that when God does it, he gets all the glory? What's the insurmountable barrier that you see in front of you that you just think, there's no way, God. There's no way. And our faith is on the line when we say there's no way. Now, God may or may not do it, but what we need to realize is that no barrier is insurmountable for God if it's in his will to conquer it. No plan of his can be thwarted. Do you realize that God is still building his kingdom? God is still creating a new kingdom. You may say, well, how does that happen? Every time a new sinner repents and believes in Jesus, God is adding to his kingdom. Every time a person repents and believes in Jesus and God calls them out of pagan idolatry, he's building his kingdom. So the question that we have this morning is, are you part of that kingdom? Have you repented and believed so that you're part of that kingdom? And so here's the ultimate question this morning. How will you respond to the king of the kingdom? Will your answer be yes before you even know what he asks you to do? Because the only response worthy of the king is yes, Lord. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. As we, rep- as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, may we be like Abraham, who responded with immediate obedience and passionate worship. I mean, would that that would be the the hallmark of your life and my life.
when somebody looks at your life, maybe the first thing that they would say is, man, they respond with immediate obedience to God and their life is a life of passionate worship. God, give us the help and the grace and the power to be able to be those type of people. Would you spend some time in prayer this morning taking those insurmountable things before God and believing by faith that no plan of His can be thwarted? And would you respond with this may be here this morning and we're on the edge of this diving board. And we're not sure whether to take the leap or whether to go back down the stairs. Because we're fearful, we're doubting, we're scared. We don't know what the future holds. But I'm so thankful that you have called Abraham out of darkness into light to go. And you do the same thing today. You call sinners out of darkness into light and you call them to come to Christ. So first of all, Lord, I pray that you would call sinners to yourself this morning and that there would be those that would come to faith in Christ through repentance and faith in him alone. Father, for the rest that are here this morning, I don't know exactly what you're doing in people's hearts. Only you know that, Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, I really don't know how to pray in this moment, but I do trust that when I don't know how to pray, you take, you take those prayers with groanings to the Father. But I really want you, Father, to create within us as a church family just a renewed faith, a renewed obedience, a renewed sense of your presence. But Father, we would be the kind of people that weep over the gospel. We'd never get over the fact that you called us out of darkness into light, that you sent Jesus to die for us. And Father, as a church, as a family, as an individual, Lord, if there's a college student or a young adult or maybe even a widow or, Lord, whoever we are this morning, that when you call, when you command, when when your voice is given to us in a command, our response would be like Abraham and we would say, yes, Lord. And we'd respond immediately. And we'd respond with passionate worship knowing that you can do all things for your glory. So would you prepare our hearts now to take the Lord's Supper? That, Lord, we would take it with joy because we know that you have died for our sins and we do not have to bear those sins again. So let this be a time of joy where the joy of the Lord would be our strength as we proclaim your death this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.